I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Thanks, Ken. It's uh, always a pleasure. Today we're going to talk about tax benefits, and there's a, a secret you mentioned to me a moment ago, which I'd like to come back to before we finish. Anyway, apart from negative gearing, how do investors obtain their tax breaks? Yeah, you're right, Ken. I think everybody, when they think about tax breaks, think of first of negative gearing. And that's certainly useful and handy, but also it exposes you to the potential of cash flow shortfall if, in fact, the need arises for you to top up because, for whatever reason, your income isn't what you expect it to be. So the negative gearing is fine so long as you have surplus personal income. But probably your best tax break comes from depreciation. And the real secret with depreciation is that it is a non-cash deduction. In other words, you can legitimately lower your assessable income without the expense coming out of your own pocket. And that's probably the real plus. And most people, unfortunately, do not fully claim what they're entitled to as far as depreciation is concerned because they don't really know how to go about it. Could you explain to our listeners just how that works? Well, the purpose of depreciation is to compensate investors for the decline in value of their depreciating property assets. That's the plant and equipment, as well as the wear and tear on the building itself. Now, the underlying assumption here is that your building and its fixtures and fittings will decrease in value as they become older, while the land and the overall value of the property will increase over time. Now, the tax office is happy to compensate you as an investor for the wear and tear that occurs, but it won't allow the deductions over and above what increase in value may not have occurred at the point of sale, and there has to be an adjustment. Now, what that means is that you can happily take advantage of the provisions right up until you sell the property. And at that point, you are required to calculate what decline in value actually occurred in the building and its fixtures. And if you've actually deducted more than the decline that occurred, you then effectively have to pay back that amount to the tax office. But the good news is, you do so in tomorrow's dollars. So the way to look at it is that if if you have bought, say, a million-dollar property today and you hold it for 10 years, over that period, you may have had a total depreciation claim of, say, $400,000. Now, this allows you to reduce your assessable income during that 10-year period, giving you an actual saving of $400,000 multiplied by your marginal tax rate. Let's say that's the top rate of 45%. So that equates to $180,000 in cash back in your pocket as a result of claiming the depreciation. So let's say after 10 years, you sell the property and you realise a figure of $3 million. So you'll have capital gains tax on the uh, 
profit from the land and the buildings, and there'll be a balancing adjustment on for the depreciating assets. Now, even if you're on the same tax rate and you end up having to pay back the full $180,000 that, that you've benefited from, you do so from the proceeds of the sale when you've got money in hand, but in tomorrow's dollars, and you will have already enjoyed the cash flow benefits from the tax savings while you were the owner of the property. Now, as can often be the case, at that time your marginal tax rate may have fallen, you'll be in an even better position at the time you sell it. And not to mention, as we said, that the $180,000 is worth a whole lot less than the $180,000 in tax savings you've already gained over that past 10-year period. So there are a lot of benefits, and the main ones are that you get upfront deductions from the your, in reducing your assessable income. You have the benefit while you hold the property, and only when you have cash in hand if there's a balancing charge at the end, that's when you pay it. And it's in 10-year-old dollars as opposed to the gain you got 10 years earlier. So there's a whole lot of pluses with depreciation. The real one is that, as I said, it's a non-cash deduction. So it doesn't come out of your pocket, but it enables you to get cash back into your pocket at the end of each financial year during the period you claim your depreciation. From memory, there are two types of depreciation. Yes, you're right. There, there are two types of depreciation. The first one is what's called Division 40 items, which are the accelerated depreciation items. And then there's the structural component, which is Division 43. So let's look at the, the accelerated ones first. And I think from memory... It was either episode four or five. We actually provided a list of the rate at which they could be depreciated. There are some items like carpet, I think, can be depreciated over about five or six years. Some items, I think, even even faster than that. But there's a whole list there. And generally, your greatest depreciation of these items occurs in the first five years of your ownership. And I'll explain that why that is in a moment. Because... Most people don't understand that when you purchase the property, you have a quantity surveyor go in and apportion the purchase price of the property by subtracting the land and then calculating by the construction data when the building was built what the capital or structural component cost would be. And then what's left over is the current day value of the accelerated depreciation items, the plant and equipment, the Division 40 items. Now, notwithstanding they might have been built five, six, ten years ago or provided on the property that time ago, you are able to upvalue them. And I'll I'll tell you the secret in a moment as to how to, to do that. Based upon the contract price at the time of your purchase. And so you have the advantage of claiming the depreciation on these items as though they were effectively new. And as I said, the depreciation rates range from, I don't have the list in front of me, but somewhere from 5 
to 15 or 20 percent per annum so that these are the items that you really need to focus on the division 43 component the structural cost of the building is depreciated at two and a half percent per annum in other words they're assuming the structure will last for 40 years so you don't get a large depreciation but when added to the accelerated depreciation it comes to be a sizable amount and so this is what you need to focus on and where you're going to get your greatest benefit when you purchase a commercial property and then the amount of depreciable items in a commercial property are far greater than that for a residential and also for an industrial property. When I say commercial, I'm talking an office building here. It's far greater than residential and also industrial and also retail because most of the fit out in retail is done by the tenant. Therefore, as the investor owner, you don't have the right to, to claim that. So those are the two different types of depreciation and they're quite separate. You need a quantity surveyor to calculate and assess them and provide you with a tax depreciation schedule. And most people think it's their accountant that does that. No, the accountant is the one that implements it and arranges for your end of year claim in your tax return. But the quantity surveyor is the one that generates the individual cost items for depreciation and provides them by way of a detailed schedule from which your accountant then lodges your tax return and makes the claim at the end of each financial year. Why does depreciation provide a real boost to the overall return for commercial property investors? Now, the thing that most people, when contemplating depreciation, think only about what it is you've inherited when you purchase the property. And it's they feel that's where your depreciation starts and ends. But in actual fact, it goes a lot deeper than that. Now, when you look at normally what people claim as a deduction, most people think it's repairs and maintenance once you've purchased the property and you're into the ongoing management and ownership of the property. And repairs and maintenance are fine, but you have to be very careful as to how you treat repairs and maintenance because a lot of the tax department have been clamping down on an overclaiming by investors on what is a repair and what is maintenance for a property. Now, just so you know, the, the three characteristics of a repair are firstly, it must be the restoration of an income producing asset to its previous condition. Now, you can't provide an enhancement of what it is you're repairing and maintaining. It can only be restored to its previous condition. Secondly, the asset must be in need of restoration before it is repaired. So you can't just choose to start repairing something simply because you feel it, it, could, it ought to be upgraded. And thirdly, the repair involves the replacement or renewal of a part of the asset and not the whole asset. So if it involves actually replacing an air conditioning unit, even though it were replaced to a similar condition, that's actually not a repair. That's treated as a, 
an item which then needs to be depreciated. So that's what you need to to determine is where that is. But you, you see, you haven't lost the right to claim, but not all in the one year. So if the item is an upgrade, and we'll come to that in a moment, then that gets added to your cost base and your list of items for depreciation and then starts depreciating depending on its rate over the next three to five, seven years. So as I said, you don't lose the right to claim the money you've spent, but it can't be done all in the one year, which is what a repair and or, and or maintenance enables you to do. So you need to be careful about that and, and you need to keep good records. So when you have improvements, they're considered to be capital expenses and tax depreciation is available on all those expenses. Now, this obviously works in the usual way. The cost base of the asset is calculated. Its effective life is determined, i.e. the rate at which it can be depreciated each year. And then your method of depreciation is determined, you know, either prime cost or diminishing value. And diminishing value has the advantage that you can claim more in the early years, which is, from your point of view, going to enhance the return on your investment. So then you've got the issue after improvements is when you do refurbishments. Now, these generally occur in two stages. The first is removing the old asset and then replacing it with the new one. Now, let's suppose the tenant leaves and you rip out the carpet and you pull down the petitions you then replace it with new carpet, new petitions, you paint it out, might be even new light fittings, replacing those. And all of these get added to the cost base and can be depreciated. As we said, you determine its effective life and then decide on the method of depreciation. Now, that's fine. That provides you with your ongoing depreciation. However, again, what most people neglect to do is to actually claim the remaining written down value or the amount that it's written down to in the books when you remove it. So in other words, it, it, let's assume you had an asset that was worth $5,000 and it's written down to $1,000 and you would, if you kept that there, it might be carpet, you would continue to write it down. However, if you decide to pull it up and replace it, you can claim in that year the remaining $1,000. And then you replace the carpet and it's the cost of the new carpet that gets put into your ledger for depreciation from that new cost base. So you can immediately claim the $1,000 for the carpet. Now, if, you, if in fact you decide when you pull it up, someone has um, agreed that they will buy it from you for $500, well, you can't claim $1,000 there because you haven't actually lost that. You've actually been able to recoup $500. So you can only claim the $500 shortfall between what the written down value was and what you might be able to sell it to someone as a remnant. So it's important to understand how that all works because there are so many areas that people, the money just slips through their hands because they don't keep good records and they don't realise that each time you make an improvement to the property, there is a hidden deduction. Again, it's a non-cash deduction. 
because you can write off immediately the balance of the cost base of the the asset that's being replaced. So there there are a lot of issues there that, that you need to consider. And as you said, the overall return to the commercial investor can be certainly maximised to a far greater degree than what most people would actually realise. You were telling me off air that there is one vital step you, you need to take in negotiating the purchase contract. Would you perhaps like to explain it here? Yeah, it, it's rather neat, actually. We spoke earlier about this balancing adjustment. In other words, that if you have written down the assets and end up selling them when you transfer the property for a higher figure, you have to pay the balancing adjustment. In other words, the tax department will allow you to write it down, but if you make a profit when you sell, then you have to repay what you've claimed. And as we said, that's paid in tomorrow's dollars. However, what you do is that you can step around this by inserting into the contract the ledger details from your accountant of the written down value of all the assets. So you specify in the contract that you are passing those assets to the new purchaser at that value. And once you do that, then there is no requirement for you to pay a balancing charge, my understanding. Now, the other thing you you need to think about is, or be wary of, is that when you purchase the property, you don't want in the contract a written down value schedule of all the assets, the depreciable components. Because once you do that, or accept that, you use that as your cost base from which any further depreciation can be calculated and claimed by you. So you need to ensure that your contract is silent as to the actual value of the depreciable components of the building. Now, understand I'm acting for purchases, so I'm not about to tell the vendor that by doing that and being silent, that potentially they have a liability for the balancing charge because, you see, they've already claimed the depreciation. We are now, because the contract is silent, are able to petition the cost or the purchase price of the property, as I said, take off the land, remove the structural cost, which is a fixed cost, and then the balance of the purchase price becomes the plant and articles, the highly depreciable items. Now, you want that as high as you possibly can. So the only way you achieve that is by having the contract silent, in other words, not specifying a dollar value for those components. And this is, this, there's nothing illegal about this. You're not obliged to tell a vendor they have a, a potential problem. But as I said, the obverse is, yes, you claim it and upvalue them when you purchase, but then you make sure that you include in your contract of sale the written down value because then there's no argument as to what was the value of the the components at the point you actually sold the property. So to quickly recap, although the the tax office recoups the deductions or or the the claim through the the balancing adjustment when you sell an asset for more than what it was purchased for, any actual loss in value of the asset remains protected. The reason why you have the written down value in the contract when you come to sell. Also, remember that if the contract 
what you're purchasing under stipulates the amounts for the assets, you are then limited to those amounts for depreciation purposes. Therefore, when you initially purchase the property, it's vital that you ensure the correct wording is used in the contract so you can boost your ongoing tax claims. Now, when it comes to capital gains tax, you can in fact actually be entitled to a reduction or a discount depending on the ownership structure of the property. But even if there is no discount available to you, remember, you're paying for it in tomorrow's dollars. So what's important in this is that you need to get some expert advice. And the last thing you want is to be hit with an unexpected tax bill. And so it's essential that you are comfortable with your tax position before you sign the contract, not afterwards, because you can't backtrack and make those changes. So it's important you get the right advice from a good lawyer who has a tax partner who can help you with the vehicle. And then once you purchase the property, that's when you get your quantity surveyor involved to create your tax depreciation schedule. I know this can be a rather dry and complex topic, but hopefully you've been able to bring it to life by revealing the true benefits that depreciation can provide for our listeners. Anyway, Chris, I look forward to catching up with you again next week. Yeah, and I'll enjoy doing that too.